The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We don't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in the United States where men were free. So said Ronald Reagan years before he became president, the 40th president of the United States. Reagan understood the fragility and value of national freedom. And he recognized that it's something that, if taken for granted, will be ultimately taken from us. If it's not nurtured, if it's not protected, if it's not carefully taught and entrusted to every rising generation, then eventually it will be lost altogether. What's true for national freedom is also true for biblical Christianity. The knowledge of the true God what it means to be reconciled to him, to live for him, is never more than one generation away from being completely lost in a nation, in a church, or in a family. God's grace does not travel along bloodlines. It is not received and maintained by osmosis. That is... Just hanging around Christians or being involved in a Christian church will never be enough to make a person right with God. Children, young people, because God has given you parents who know the Lord and trust the Lord, does not guarantee that you, when you take your place in this world, will know and trust the Lord. If we care about our rising generation, if we care about unborn children, we who know the Lord, then it is incumbent upon us to do all that we can to teach the way of the Lord to those who will follow after us. Time and again throughout history, we have seen it happen where a generation who was faithful to the Lord is followed by a generation who does not know the Lord. For the last several weeks, we have been studying the book of Judges in the Old Testament, where this lesson is set before us repeatedly. The book of Judges covers a two to four hundred year period in the history of Israel, from the time that Joshua led them from the wilderness into the promised land on a conquest, to the time of the establishment of the monarchy in the United Kingdom that really gained its prominence under King David. Judges 2.10 is an apt description of what happened to the Israelites after the death of Joshua and his contemporaries. That verse says that all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A generation filled with men and women who loved Jesus, loved the revelation of Jesus to come, who believed the promises of God, who were faithful to God, that generation died out. 
And in their place arose another generation who grew up in their homes who did not know the Lord. The cycle's repeated 12 times in the book of Judges. Today in our study, we come to the fourth of those cycles. It begins in chapter 6. After Othniel and then Ehud and then Deborah and Barak were raised up by God to judge the nation, God raised up a man named Gideon who would be the rescuer and judge of his people. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 tell us how the Lord did it. And it begins the way that all of the other cycles begin in the book of Judges, with an acknowledgement that a generation arose in Israel who turned away from the Lord. The book of Judges gives more space, more information about Gideon than it does to any of the other judges that we will study. The last judge in this book is Samson. Samson has three chapters given to him with 96 verses, but here we have, or he has four chapters with 96 verses, but here we have Gideon with three chapters that are comprised of 100 verses. This morning what I want us to do is look at the first of these chapters, chapter 6, 40 verses, that introduces Gideon to us and begins to describe how God turned him into an unlikely man of valor. So follow along in your copy of God's Word. It's Judges chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide for you, it's on page 205. I encourage you to open it up, and as I read it aloud, let your eyes follow along the words on the page. The big numbers are the chapter divisions. The little numbers are verse divisions. And you're going to hear me refer to chapters and verses. And So if you don't have your Bible open, you're probably going to be bored to tears and lost so let me just encourage you to keep your Bibles open and hear the word of the Lord as I read it for us, beginning in Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, 
If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold there, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubael. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all of the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, 
If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew of the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with this fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. In this passage, we find God through the angel of the Lord, which is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son of God, calling Gideon to be a mighty man of valor. And the way that he does it reveals to us the faithfulness of God. This chapter teaches us that God is always faithful to his people. He deals faithfully with his people. We see it, first of all, in the way that God disciplines and rebukes his people according to his word. This is how the chapter opens in the first ten verses. Again, the people do evil and the Lord disciplines them for it. Look at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God looked at them, saw what they were doing, judged it to be evil. What was it they were doing? We've seen it in other chapters thus far. Their evil was turning away from God and turning to the idols of their neighbors, worshiping these false gods, buying into the values, buying into the aspirations of people who did not know the true God. And God judged it as evil. The Midianites, together with the Amalekites and other groups, began to raid the nation of Israel. Several tribes, they went over a large spread of the nation of Israel. And their coming to raid the Israelites was the Lord's discipline upon the Israelites. This was the Lord's doing. If you look at verse 1 again, it says, The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So what would happen is that they would come year after year, and they would steal the crops that the Israelites had planted. They would steal the livestock that the Israelites had gathered. They would force the Israelites to leave their towns and villages and run to the hills in order to live in the hills so they wouldn't be as accessible to the Amalekites and the Midianites and the people of the east. You look at verse 5, at the end of it, it says that they would come like locusts in number. In other words, it was just this marauding horde they would come and just devastate everything in their wake. Both they and their camels could not be counted. This is the first time we have reference to camels being used in warfare. These camels that were so numerous as the Midianites and the Amalekites and the others would be on them and they would just charge through. must have been an intimidating sight to the Israelites. And when they saw them coming, saw the dust in the, the distance, they would immediately gather up what they could. It would run for the hills knowing that they were about to be devastated once again. This happened year after year after year for seven years. Once again, we are reminded in this passage that God takes our willful sin and compromise of his word seriously. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord saves us, 
he pledges himself to be wholeheartedly devoted to our eternal welfare. And he expects in response for his people to be wholly devoted to his honor and glory in the world. And our wholly devoted God will not stand idly by when his people drift into half-hearted devotion to him. So, they do evil. God disciplines them. The people cry out in the midst of their pain and suffering. And the Lord responds by rebuking them. This is interesting. We look at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. The people cry out. They ask God to come help them. Twice that's recorded. Verse 6, also verse 7. And the Lord responds to their cries for help by sending them a prophet. An unnamed prophet. Now why does God do this? What they wanted, what they obviously needed, was a rescuer. They needed another deliverer, like Othniel, like Ehud, like Deborah and Barak. Why does God send them a preacher at the moment of their great affliction? Well, we can get an answer to that question by looking at what it is that the prophet actually says to them. What's his message? There's basically three things that he communicates to the Israelites in their misery. First, in verses 8 and 9, he reminds them of what the Lord has done for them. This God against whom you are sinning, who you have turned away from, is the God who's delivered you out of Egyptian bondage. He's the one that promised to give you the land that you are in. And now has established you in that land. Secondly, the prophet reminds them of what the Lord requires of them. Having given them salvation, having given them the land, verse 10, the Lord says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, you don't give yourself over to other gods. I'm your God. I'm your Savior. And then he plainly rebukes them for their disobedience. Verse 10, he makes it crystal clear. But you have not obeyed my voice. The people are in great distress. They no doubt regret the consequences of their actions. They're, they're having to every year run from these Midianites and the hordes and devastation that they wreak upon the nation. They realize that it is their actions that have led to this great suffering. And so they cry out to God in their suffering. But though they are filled with regret, there's no indication whatsoever that they are experiencing true repentance. There's a vital difference between regret and repentance. And that difference is of eternal importance. In fact, it's the difference between heaven and hell. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He refers there to a letter that he had written to the church at Corinth where he had to rebuke them pretty severely. And that rebuke caused them a great deal of pain and grief because it was the Apostle who was pointing out their sin, showing them they're doing wrong, calling them to repent. As Paul writes about that letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
He says he took no pleasure in grieving them. It, it didn't cause him any joy to know that they were in sorrow. But, he says, he rejoiced because their grieving led to repenting. So he rejoiced in that. He writes this, You grieved into repenting, for you felt godly grief. In verse 9 of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, those are his words. Then he explains in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Brothers and sisters, friends, just because you grieve deeply in the aftermath of your sin does not mean that you are truly repentant. The Bible defines repentance for us. And the Israelites here in our text grieved and were filled with regret, but there's no indication that they were repentant. They were suffering the consequences of their sin. And verses 6 and 7 of our text say they were brought very low. And in their lowness, in their suffering, they cried out to, their, to God for relief. But their grief was not godly and their regret was not repentance. They were grieved over the loss of their crops. But not over their loss of the Lord's presence and favor. So God sends them a prophet to hold up a mirror in front of them so that they can see exactly what they have done. Not just in the way they've been affected by their actions, but what they have done against their God. Regret is always focused on horizontal losses. Repentance is always focused on vertical losses. A regretful person is focused on himself. A repentant person is focused upon God. Paul explains how to tell the difference between worldly sorrow that leads only to regret and godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance without regret. He does this in the classic verse in all the Bible on repentance. It's 2 Corinthians 7.11. He knew the Corinthians were genuinely repentant as a result of his letter because he writes this, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Paul says, I know that what you are experiencing is not just worldly regret, worldly sorrow, but what your experience is godly sorrow that leads to true repentance because this is what has borne fruit in your life. You hate what you did. You want to clear the air of what you did. You want to make restitution. You want to do whatever you got to do because you realize that you have sinned against your God. Real repentance leads the repenter to joy, not regret. Because it leads him to the place where sin has once and for all time been paid for where genuine reconciliation has been attained between God against whom we've sinned and we ourselves, the sinners. Real repentance always leads to the cross of Jesus Christ. When a person repents, he goes to Christ 
confesses his sins anew, looks to what Jesus has done in fresh ways, and believes in the forgiveness of of, of his sins because of what Jesus has done. So he doesn't have to go on focusing upon himself, living with guilt, living with shame, living with this regret. True biblical repentance sets you free from being dominated by beating yourself up over your sin. Because true biblical repentance says, yes, it's true, I've sinned against my God who's good and gracious and loving. And there's a Savior my good, gracious, loving God has provided for me. And that Savior has taken all of my sin upon Himself and in Him I'm forgiven. From turning again from sin, trusting yourself in fresh faith to that Savior, you know and believe in the forgiveness of sins because of what he has done. That's what Paul says about repentance. This is what we are to do as those who live in a world where sin is inevitable. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. Every one of us in this room has undoubtedly experienced regret. But my question is, have you ever experienced repentance? Do you know what it is not just to be sorry for your sin or sorry for your shortcomings because of the mess it's created? But do you know what it is to be confronted face to face by the Word of God and what it says about your sin? And to know that your sin is against your good, gracious, loving Creator? That you've sinned against God? And seeing that sin turn from it to look to the provision of forgiveness that this God has made by giving up His Son for sinners? Do you know that? Have you ever turned away from sin to the provision of salvation from sin in Jesus Christ so that you can say, yes, I've given myself to Christ. I believe in forgiveness because of Christ and found the joy that comes to repentant, believing sinners. You've never experienced that, my friend, today. Today, on the authority of God's word, I set before you this way of salvation, this way of forgiveness, this way of reconciliation to God, this way of having your sins completely removed forever that God has made in Jesus Christ. And I call upon you, trust him, confess your sins to him, acknowledge it's true, and come to him and believe what he says he has provided in his son. You trust Jesus and you can be sure Every last one of your sins has been paid for. That's the good news that we find given to us in scriptures. We see God's faithfulness in this text, not only in how he disciplines and rebukes his wayward children by sending them when they want a deliverer first, a preacher. We also see, secondly, how God saves his people according to his promise. According to his promise. This is the bulk of the chapter, beginning in verse 11. The Israelites, no indication, the Israelites repented on this occasion. Nothing in the text suggests that they repented. But God doesn't wait for us to repent before he begins to save us. It's an important point. God begins to save his people in eternity past. Before any of us could ever repent or believe or do anything good, God set His love upon His people. He chooses a people for Himself. And then, 
before any one of us in this room was born, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to accomplish our salvation. What did we do to earn or deserve the death of God's Son? Nothing. Nothing. Paul says it in Romans 5, that it's while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not God says, oh, I see repentance, I'm going to send my Son. Oh, I see you're going to trust me, I'm going to choose you to be mine. No, God's salvation from beginning to end is all grace. It's not contingent upon us. It's not responsive to us. It initiates in us. So where repentance exists, it's not the trigger that gives God's grace leeway to come. Where repentance exists, brothers and sisters, it's indication God's salvation is already at work. God's come to you. If you're repenting of sin, you can be Sure, that it's because God and His grace has come to you by His Word, by His Spirit, and begun to work it in you. Repentance is evidence of saving grace already begun in a person. God saves His people not because we do something. God saves His people according to His promise. Notice the words that the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon. This is fascinating to me. Verse 12. Look at this. Angel of the Lord shows up, says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I mean, I could just imagine Gideon. He turns around, Who are you talking to? <laughs> I mean, here I am. I'm hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat because I don't want the Amalekites to see me. It's not the way you take care of wheat. Wheat's to be taken care of in the open so the wind can blow the chaff away. But here he's hiding in this, this dugout wine pit out of fear. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, mighty man of valor. Gideon says, whoa, not, not me. He hadn't earned that title. He was not thinking of himself in those categories. He neither looked like nor felt like a mighty warrior. But that's what God called him. So now then, Gideon is faced with a dilemma. I feel afraid, I feel weak, I feel like I can't do anything. And the angel of the Lord is saying, you're a mighty man of valor. What's Gideon do? Who's Gideon going to believe? His experience? His own understanding of himself? Or is he going to believe the Lord? Now, brothers and sisters, isn't this what we are faced with pretty regularly? God says something that your experience and understanding suggests just can't be true. You may not say it as blatantly as that, but it tends to work in the back of your head, doesn't it? God says it, and yet you know yourself, and so God says, this is true of you, and you're thinking, it can't be true. It might be true of him, but not me. When those situations arise in God's word, we must face the dilemma honestly the way Gideon faced it. We must hear what God says and take our understanding and experience and let our understanding and experience be judged by the truth of God's word. That takes faith. You've got to take God at his word to do that. If you're a Christian... If you're trusting Jesus today, what's true of you? 
What's true of every Christian according to God's Word? Well, I just want to give you a few things. There are hundreds, but I want to give you a few. You're spiritually alive. You're alive because God's made you alive spiritually. You're no longer under condemnation because there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You ever feel condemned by God? If you're a Christian, no condemnation. You're justified freely in God's sight. That is, God has rendered a judgment upon you that is yours forever. Justified. He counts you in his courtroom to be as righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. Is your experience tell you, yeah, I get that. That's the way I feel. You ever doubt that? You're reconciled completely to your creator. You ever feel like your creator's against you? You ever feel like he's pursuing you to death? The Bible says... You're reconciled to him. You're his child. He's your father. You're completely forgiven of every last one of your sins. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit. You're adopted into God's family. You are chosen by God. You're eternally and unchangeably loved by God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are a part of a royal priesthood. You're royalty in God's eyes. (laughs) You feel like it? Does your experience always tell you, yeah, I get that. You are an ambassador for Christ. He's anointed and appointed you to represent him in the world. You're eternally secure in your relationship with God because God himself is the one who's begun the work. He will complete the work that he's begun in you. You're guaranteed to be raised from the dead just as Jesus was raised from the dead. You are already blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. There's not a blessing God has that doesn't belong to you. You feel blessed? I don't always feel blessed. The Bible says it's true. We are destined for heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is what God says of those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you trusting Christ Jesus, your Lord? This is what God says to you. It's like he came to Gideon. He says, mighty man of valor. He comes to you and says all of these things and more. What are you going to do? Are you going to believe God? Are you going to take God his word? Or are you going to revert back to your own understanding, your own experience of what feels to be true because you've had a lifetime of hearing these messages about yourself? Faith requires us to take God at his word. Believing what he says, even when what he says seems to go against our own experience and understanding. So the angel of the Lord comes and makes this declaration of Gideon. And then he says in verse 14, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? The angel of the Lord promised Gideon that it was God himself who was sending him. Verse 15, Gideon continues to protest because he just can't get over his experience, his own understanding. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. All those things are true. There's no indication that Gideon's just manufacturing stuff or poor-mouthing himself. These are facts. These are facts. 
What do those facts mean to God? You look at the response the angel of the Lord gives him in verse 16. Okay, okay, true enough. But I will be with you. I will be with you. Gideon's protests are met with God's promises. Brothers and sisters, that's precisely how you and I are to meet what seem to be insurmountable obstacles that lie in the pathway of obedience to God's commands. We look at what God's called us to be. We look at what God's called us to do. And we think, no way. It's not me. Never done that. Can't do that. We need to come back to the Word of God, hear the promise of God. I will be with you. This works in every area of life. Every instruction, admonition we're given in the Bible to live out our faith in the Lord Jesus. Let me just cite a couple of examples. Husbands, husbands, God tells us, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Sacrificially, unconditionally, laying down my life, and doing the dishes and picking up after myself and all these things that sometimes we might think are worse than death. And God tells us, you know, husband, love your wife that way. Love your wife that way. I can't do that. It's not me. But he tells us to do it, and he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. The living God is with you. Okay. Then I, I need to take your, your word, believe you're with me, and I need to go for it. I need to begin to try, and when I fall, I get up and start again because I know you're with me. It's what you've told me to be and do. Wives, same thing. Be submissive to your husbands. Respect your husbands. Respect him. <laughs> be submissive to him. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do that. Well, the Lord says he's with you. The Lord says he's with you. And so it's not in your own strength, and it's not on the basis of your own experience. It's on the basis of his promise. And so you lay hold of his promise by faith. You take in his word, and you begin to live the way that he calls you to live. Believe what God says about you. Believe what he's done for you. Believe what he says he will do for you. Then in faith, look to his word for guidance and seek to live in obedience to his commandments by faith. The Lord assures that he is the one who has promised these things to Gideon in the face of Gideon's uncertainty. Gideon hears it, hears the declarations, promises, and he's still not sure. Verse 17, if I found favor in your eyes, Gideon says, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. I don't want to be hearing voices. I don't want to be confusing what I think is the real God with just some pagan God's spirits that maybe have come and tricked me somehow. I want to know it's really you. And so the angel of the Lord agrees once Gideon prepares an appropriate offering. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord consumes it with fire out of the rock. Now Gideon is looking for comfort and confirmation, but when that happens, he's terrified. <laughs> he's like, whoa, I've seen the angel of the Lord. I didn't, I didn't bargain for all this. And so even in his terror, when the angel of the Lord disappears, God nevertheless speaks peace and comfort to him in verse 23. See how kind and loving God is to his frail creature of dust. God is going to use Gideon to save Israel from the Midianites. But he does not choose Gideon because Gideon is qualified. 
He qualifies Gideon because he chose him. And that's the hope for every child of God. If God has saved you, he's put you on the pathway of honoring Jesus, he tells you in his word this is what that looks like, then you can be sure that he will equip you, he will empower you, he will qualify you for all that he has chosen you to do. Our salvation is completely God's work. He begins it, he keeps it going, he will bring it to completion. Therefore, whatever the Lord calls us to be and do, we can be sure that he will also promise that his presence will be with us as we do it. And if the Lord is with us, what else do we need? What else do we need? So God disciplines and rebukes his people according to his word. He saves his people according to his promise. Thirdly, in our text we see, God commands his people to be exclusively committed to him. He commands them to exclusive commitment. The Lord tells Gideon to destroy his father's idols of Baal and Asher in verse 25. Why? Why does God tell Gideon to take down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole to the goddess Asherah that his dad had built? Why does God do that? I'm going to tell you why God does that. Because God is intolerant. Okay? Just go ahead and say it and let the politically correct folks cringe. God is intolerant. God is jealous. Baal may be broad-minded enough to be willing to allow those who would honor the true God also honor him. He might not be so jealous. But not the God of the Bible. Our wholehearted God will never be satisfied to have his people only half-hearted in our devotion to him. Did you notice that these idols were in the very grounds of Gideon's father? This epitomizes what's going on in Israel at this time. It wasn't that the people of God had completely rejected God and said, we don't want God anymore. They were trying to worship God plus the idols of the people around them. They didn't completely deny the Lord. They just wanted to live compromised lives. They wanted to have God, at least tip their hats to God, while going after everything their neighbors had in their gods. They wanted the Lord and His blessings while indulging the world in what it had to offer. Isn't that exactly what we face in our day? It's true for every generation. The challenges facing Christians today in our setting is primarily not is not primarily to renounce Jesus Christ as Lord but simply not to take him very seriously as Lord and we need to see this coming it's here it's coming more and more brothers and sisters husbands fathers adults grandparents aunts uncles we need to help think about these things with ourselves we need to help prepare our children for this I mean, what will you do? What will they do when faced with the choice of saying what Jesus Christ says is right, good, wrong, and evil, or losing your job, being denied entrance into a school that you want to attend, a vocation that you've aspired for? What will you do when you are faced with the prospect of living wholeheartedly for Jesus in humble obedience to His commandments, and doing so means getting kicked off your sports team. 
because your coach won't tolerate it. Or when it means that you are disowned by your family because your parents think that's way too radical. Or if it means given a failing, being given a failing grade on an assignment. The Israelites in Gideon's day were guilty of trying to worship God and Baal. God would have nothing of it. He would not stand for it then, neither will he stand for it now. In the place of the destroyed Baal altar, Gideon was told to build an altar for the Lord and to restore proper worship to the Lord on that rebuilt altar. Verses 26 through 32. He did it. He did it. But he didn't do it as boldly as you might think a mighty man of valor would do it. Verse 27 tells us he did it, but at night. Because he was afraid of what his family might say. Afraid of what the men in town might say. But isn't it interesting that little faith that obeys God, even when it's scared, is still acceptable to God? He does it. God didn't tell him to do it bravely. He just told him to do it. So with trembling fear, he did it. He offered up what God required. The consequences were swift. Verses 28 through 30. The townsmen wanted to kill him. Who dare touch our idols? Who dare would suggest that the way we're living is not acceptable to God? And Here Gideon's father kicks in with real wisdom in verses 31 and 32. You know what he says there? If that would be taken as sound advice for all the world's religions, then there wouldn't be an ISIS. There wouldn't be those who kill in the name of any god, false or not. Let, let the god decide for him. Isn't he strong enough to take care of this himself? So the men are shamed with that. They're persuaded by that argument to let Baal contend for himself. Gideon's obedience forces the people to face the issue of their half-hearted devotion to the Lord. Will they worship the God of their fathers wholeheartedly, or will they offer him half-hearted devotion in order to accommodate their devotion to the gods of Canaan? That's the question. Gideon's reception of God's command to tear down the Baal and the Asherah altars makes crystal clear that God intends for his people to worship him exclusively and wholeheartedly no matter what. Brothers and sisters, this is a question we need to settle in our minds and remind ourselves regularly, day after day, that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has completely satisfied for all our sins. That needs to be our heart's awareness, our confession regularly that we make to ourselves and others to settle it, that His commandments will be our delight and our guide. And then we need to be willing to stand against every attempt to get us to compromise for the sake of some supposed greater good. Rather, we will serve the Lord. Let the consequences be what they may. God disciplines and rebukes His children according to His word. He saves His people according to His promise. He commands them to be exclusively committed to Him. And then finally, in our text, what I want to point out is that God encourages His people with power and patience. We begin to read in verse 33 that the armies of the Amalekites and the Midianites and the people of the east start rallying once again. They cross the river. It's their annual siege. It's their annual raiding party. They're going to come and restore all of their bounty on the backs 
of what the Israelites have produced. But this time, Gideon has raised an army. In verses 34 and 35, we see four different tribes, starting with his own clan and expanding to his own tribe of Manasseh, and then three other tribes have the alarm sounded, and they rally to Gideon's call. Isn't that interesting? Why do, do, why do these tribes rally to Gideon? What is it that they, call, they, they see that they call, call one another to follow after him? Why do they follow him to do what Gideon does in the next chapter, which is to thoroughly rout the Midianites? How is Gideon able to do that? How is he able to gather an army, first of all? Then how is he able to use that army to defeat the Midianites? What's going on here? I mean, this is still the guy who's the least in his father's household, that's the least clan in the tribe, that's the least tribe in the nation. How does this happen? Well, there are two reasons given us in the text. The first is found in verse 34. God empowers Gideon with his Holy Spirit. Do you see this? Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He put on Gideon. That's, that's the language there. It means he came on him with power. It means he took possession of Gideon. He came and worked transformingly, powerfully in him. What we read that Gideon accomplishes, accomplishes should not be attributed to his own prowess, or innate ability. It's the presence and power of God's Spirit in him. And brothers and sisters, that's true of us. God gifts us, God gives us abilities, but then God empowers us to use those gifts and abilities for the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. It is his Spirit that enables us to do what we do. So whenever we accomplish anything of any value in the kingdom of God, we need to remember this. When Paul the Apostle talks about his hard work as an apostle in comparison with the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15, he puts it like this in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Wasn't ashamed of that. But then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And that's how we should see our lives as well. Gideon was able to do what he did because the Spirit of God came upon him and empowered him. But then the second reason we see Gideon able to do this is because God encourages him with patience and assurance. In verses 36 through 40, Gideon asks for more reassurance. And he uses this fleece of wool in order to gain it. First, he says, let me put the fleece out in Lord overnight. Make the fleece wet and all the ground dry. God does it. He wrings out that fleece and a bowl full of water comes out. And then he says, I don't, don't be angry with me. I'm not trying to tempt you. But would you do the reverse? I mean, it's a wool fleece, and so maybe extra water got on it. So would you make the ground wet and the fleece dry? God does that. Patiently, graciously reassuring Gideon. Now what's going on here? This is perhaps the, 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 one of the most famous incidences in all the book of Judges. If you don't know anything else about the book of Judges, you've probably heard about the fleece, right? It's also one of the most misunderstood sections of the book of Judges. Gideon is not trying to make a decision when he lays out this fleece. Do you see that? 
He's looking for reassurance that God really is who He says He is and will do what He says He would do. Look at verse 36. Gideon says if you, to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, it's dry on all the ground. Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Gideon didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a church. He didn't have the full revelation of God's salvation in Jesus. He only sporadically had prophets come to teach him. He wanted to make sure that this really is the true God who's speaking to him and that this God really is able to do what he says he will do. Brothers and sisters, this is not a method for trying to discern God's will. This is an Old Testament saint's effort to know what God is really like. So don't use Gideon's example to justify laying out a fleece in order to make a decision. God's Word has a lot to say about how to make decisions, but this passage is not one of them. So don't do that. Rather, see in Gideon an example of a child of God trying the best way he knows to find out what God is really like. Now we have an incredible advantage over Gideon. An incredible advantage over all the saints of the Old Testament. Because, as Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 puts it, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. If you want to know what God's like, look to Jesus. Jesus is the full, final revelation of God. Is God able to take care of you along the path that He has ordained for you? Can He? Look to the resurrection of Jesus. Our God raises dead people. Is there anything He's called you to do that is greater than that? He's able. Is God willing to take care of you and to provide what is good for you along your pathway? Is He willing to do that? Look to Jesus. Look to the cross of Jesus. God didn't spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? How can we doubt God's goodness when we're looking at His bloody Son given on our behalf for our welfare? We want to know what God is like. We only have to look to God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Can God be trusted with knowing the best way to raise your children? Can he really be trusted? Consider the wisdom that's found in Jesus. How can the holy God who loves sinners be reconciled to sinners without setting aside his holiness? He does it by sending his son to become one of us. Living a life of righteousness that he requires of us then laying down his life on the cross in order that in paying for our sins as our substitute, God in Jesus might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. That's wisdom. God can be trusted with knowing the best way for you to live even when it might not make sense to your experience and understanding. We don't need fleeces or epiphanies or signs or wonders in our day to show us what God is like. We have God in flesh. The 
person of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. You want to be right with God, come to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. He has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to get to God, go to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you want to grow in your knowledge of God, look at Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Remember Jesus. Come back to the Scripture. See what the Scripture says about Jesus and believe what the Scripture says. That's how we grow. That's how our minds will be transformed more and more, being renewed as we see what God has given us in Jesus. In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Our God is worthy of wholehearted devotion because He is wholeheartedly faithful. He will do all that He says He will do. He will provide all that we need in this life and in the life to come. So we ought to turn every one of us from our sin. We ought to entrust ourselves, every one of us, heart and soul, to our God. Because our God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. Help it to live in us by your spirit. Don't let us forget tomorrow the things you've taught us today. Come to us by your spirit. Seal your word in us. Take us to Christ. Overwhelm us with your wisdom, your power, and your love that are put on display in all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. For we pray in his name. Amen.